Hello, food world. It's Robert Crutchfield, your favorite foodie friend from Crutchfield Cooks, here with another episode of Crutchfield Cooks, the podcast. This time around, we're going all the way from the great state of Texas to the beaches of Hawaii. As we talk to Matthew Gray, he started out selling merch for a lot of the big name bands on tour. Went to Le Cordon Bleu in London, worked in restaurants and whatnot in Los Angeles, did a lot of different things, still does a lot of different things. It's a heck of a conversation. Let's get to it. Do you want to get started? Oh, yeah. Seems only going to let me have so much time here. Sure, buddy. Uh, let's go from the beginning. <laughs> Coming out of high school, you were a roadie for, let me see, Led Zeppelin and who else? I went on the road with the Eagles on their Hotel California tour, and I was not a roadie. I was a merchandising guy. Ah, okay. So, I'll ask you about that. Different than a roadie, because roadies move equipment, and they're like right with the band on stage and so on. I was in and around the arenas uh, selling all kind of licensed merchandise for the well, Eagles. Well, if you're going to go on the road with yeah. the Eagles, it might as well be the Hotel California tour. Come on. Man, that was legendary. And then I got to go out with Fleetwood Mac and Pink Floyd as well, along with a lot of other well-known bands during those years. I think my wife has all those t-shirts. Yeah, and so did I for a long time, up until a big California earthquake where everything was stored. That got that building got destroyed. Yeah, she lost her original set in Hurricane Harvey here about five years ago. We had to oh, we had to wow. rebuild it. Wow. Yeah. Nowadays, vintage t-shirts are so expensive. I'm not sure how vintage some of these were, but we got all the right bands back in the collection. Very cool. I can see that you and I are probably in that same age range, so we probably listen to a lot of the same music. Sure. So can we move on from that a little bit? How does a guy selling t-shirts on tour with these bands, how did we get from there to the whole chef thing, the whole food thing? I, I, don't, I doubt you went straight from the arena to Lake Cordon Bleu, London, which apparently you did, what, three, four times? Yeah. My food world, my food life began when I was just a little kid. When I watched my mom cook in the kitchen, I used to use our pet dog, Happy, as a step stool to see what mom was cooking on the range. Now, that was 150 pounds ago. I just want to let everybody know that, yeah, at the age of three or four, I was already interested in food, flavor, aroma, plate architecture, and all of those things. So food was an everyday part of our world. We got together and we ate when things were good. We got together and we ate when things were bad. And we joined together in every one of life's events in between good and bad with food. So food was always a primary source of satisfaction and love for me. Good. That's good. So as a practical matter, so you really were always in the food mood. So how, how occasionally did you make that happen? I got, I got old. I was already like 21 years old. I was still on the rock and roll tours. And I thought to myself, what am I going to do when I'm old and gray, which I am right now. Yeah. And so at the age of 21 or so, I went to London because I'd always been an Anglophile. I had already visited there a few times while on tour. And I decided I'd become a professional chef because seeing as though that food is love, uh, that was a part of my experience that I really wanted to do. Spent three or four years there in London. I got a really good diploma, allowed me to become a chef when I returned back to Los Angeles. 
And then that next part, that next chapter of life began. Oh, so the, the next chapter, it began in Los Angeles then? It sure did. I hired an agent, but not a literary agent or an acting agent. I hired a chef's agent. And I asked her to get me work cooking for some of the bands that I had previously toured with when I was doing the rock and roll world. And so sure enough, she got me hooked up and I started cooking for people in the entertainment business. And, uh, and that began that aspect of cooking and food and loving and satisfying and all of the things that food is all about. So what, how was it you ended up going from Los Angeles to Hawaii where you are now? Oh, that, was a love, that was a love thing. I met a nice young lady in 91, I think, and within a year, oh, that was in Los Angeles. She was doing a, a workshop in LA, and within a year after meeting her, I had either sold or given away all of my possessions and moved to Honolulu here <laughs> to be with her. And so she's the reason that Magic Genie is her name, and um, she, we're still great friends. We're not in man-woman relationship anymore, just friends now, but best friends. And she's the reason that I'm here. And Yeah, it sounds a lot like my wife and I, except in our case, I didn't so much sell and give away all my stuff. As I sort of moved it all piece by piece to her apartment. And Yeah, but when you're moving across the Pacific, yeah. you have to pare down. I did send sure. 60, I remember this precisely, 64 one cubic foot boxes from Los Angeles to Honolulu. And that cost a lot of money. I bet it did. Yeah, yeah. I bet it did. Yeah. So tell me a little bit. Uh, obviously, your professional education began in London. You had a lot of experience in Los Angeles. I forget, you've been in Hawaii for how long now? So I'm sure there's a lot of influences from there. What is What does Matthew Gray's cuisine look like? My cuisine looks like usually, typically, whatever guests want to eat. I had to learn after having a formal education, I had to learn to be able to please the people I was cooking for. So that was an entirely new education all unto itself. So when I go in and cook for people and they'd ask for Saganaki, and I had never heard of Saganaki, I had to go to this place called a library, which, <laughs> right? which we used to have in the old days. Before, old so, in the old internet, exactly. And so I'd have to learn. I'd have to actually go and try to find recipes and read up on the history and the education and the culture related to foods and flavors. And then I'd experiment before then cooking for the people who I was cooking for at that time. Okay. Let's get a little bit more into one of your main things now is the is Hawaii food tours. Yeah. Hawaii food tours was the second food tour company in the United States. And we started that in 2004. This was after spending about five or six years of my life as the restaurant critic for Hawaii's largest daily newspaper. So I had attained what a lot of people thought was the best job in the world, which was <laughs> to get paid to eat. Robert, can you imagine getting paid to eat? And I did that for a long time, but I was feeling a little bit professionally restless and also socially restless because I had to keep my identity hidden. Even though I had been doing talk radio for many years, and then I began as a food writer and restaurant critic, I was invisible to people. They knew my name, but they didn't know my identity. So I thought, wow, wouldn't it be fun to open up a tour company since people are coming here to Hawaii and introducing them to the foods of Hawaii 
the culture, the architecture, the people, the backstory, sure. all of that great stuff. And I could do it one-to-one, face-to-face, which I had not been able to do as a restaurant critic or as a radio guy talking about food. So it was once again a re-entry into that social kind of arena where I could get together with folks like you and be able to feed, educate, and entertain people face-to-face on a daily basis. Sure. Of course, everything went along fine until you ran into the pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that, as I understand it, that derailed what you were doing quite a bit because the pandemic, of course, was horrible on restaurants and horrible on tourist-based businesses. And here you had a tourist-based food-focused operation. So I'm sure the pandemic did favors at all. It squashed us. March of 2020, I can remember our last tour, March 15th, 2020 was our last ever tour. And that was very sad because we had a famous, world famous 16 year run doing the most amazing things for travelers, making memories all through food and senses and entertainment and face-to-face activity. So yeah, the pandemic was not good for Hawaii food tours. Okay. Tell our audience a little bit about all that happened. Obviously you're paying the bills doing something now. How did you pivot and and get through all that because that's one of the things the people out there are trying to learn because there are still businesses in and out of the food world that are still not completely got their footing coming off the pandemic. Oh, yeah. The pivot has been a long process. It's been almost three years now. I did write a book called The Ultimate Eater's Guide, the Hawaii edition that I sell on my website at hawaiifoodtours.com. If I didn't write it, someone else would have. So, I did that, and I'm pivoting by coming full circle in my food world with my understanding through science and medicine about how to help people. Because as obesity, diabetes, and things like that are at epidemic levels, and I became a guy in the last three years since COVID hit, a guy who went from excess his entire life and feeding others to excess to now a person who understands food and nutrition and weight loss and reversing disease and things like that. So I'm pivoting, going towards a natural style of life and helping others get get healthier, if at all possible. I've gone through a bit of that kind of journey myself. I had my second heart attack back in October. Oh, dear. So I'm going through a big culture shock kind of thing of almost the same kind you are talking about the excess, the the decadence, the right. the luxury of life when you love food like we do. I've had to come around to the whole idea of just because you can, it doesn't mean you should. Good and point, what else man. do I know that can help me align myself with my new reality? That, in fact, is part of the reason I started this podcast because of the reality that as much as I love food, it's not going to be as easy as a heart attack survivor at 60 60 years old to step up to the flat top as it would have been even six months or a year ago. Oh, you make a perfect point there. First of all, the human animal was not designed to eat constantly and was not designed to snack constantly. We really come from hundreds of thousands of years ago. The human animal was a hunter and a gatherer. We weren't a snacker. And uh, you'd eat to survive. 
and nowadays it's gone full blown. You can just tell by the testimonial is that so many people are unhealthy and doctors still don't know a darn thing about nutrition. When was the last time that anybody went to their doctor for their annual checkup and the doctor said, so what do you eat on a typical day? Probably never. And that's one of the things that I'm stepping forward with. And I understand that I have a buddy who's a pain specialist, physician, but he doesn't know anything about nutrition. And so it's pretty wild that it takes someone like you and me, regular folks who have a huge interest in food and health and people to learn the science behind it. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist, but I know more about health and nutrition than most do. That's the crazy thing. And that's what most people don't realize. The crazy part of it is I probably know at least a half a dozen doctors. When I was in the hospital here recently, I had literally probably 20 doctors altogether. I went through practically every kind of ologist in the book, Mm -hmm. but they were taking very good care of me. I don't want to say otherwise, but lots of doctors. Even when I was in the hospital, had 20 doctors taking care of me. Crazy thing is I have more hours in nutrition than those 20 doctors put together. Oh, yeah. Heart people specialists. People want nutrition advice. They want to run to their doctor when what they should be doing is running to the nearest white table re- restaurant and talking to the chef. <laughs> That's a good point. Get it. The ACF guidelines require 30 hours of nutrition education to be a, sh- a certified chef. Yet you could be a licensed physician in any of the 50 states in this country without a single hour of nutrition training. But that's about all they get is a single hour. That's been the average the doctors I'm speaking to have gotten. One, one case, I talked to a doctor. The only reason they got that was it was a optional class they took one day during their lunch hour. Exactly. It wasn't even in the formal, in the formal curriculum. Yep. No, and the craziest part of it is that the doctors who specialize in healing and surgeries and so on like that, they do their thing and they do it well, but then they leave you in, in that hospital during your recovery and they feed you crap like jello and cottage cheese and things that are just nasty, bad for you, bread products and things like that and sugar products. And it's like, there's such a disconnect, Robert, in the medical world and the human condition that I'm taking it upon myself. And if you'll help me, that'd be great. We can get people healthy and happier here and get them off of their medication. Absolutely. Uh, what's sad is when I've talked to doctors about such things, they understand the possibility and the potential of getting you off some of those medications, but they have no clue how to get you from A to B. Exactly. And they more and more of them in today's world are admitting this and are saying, I need to get you to the nutritionist. I need to get you to, it's, I, can, I know it's possible for you to get to this place, but I, as a doctor, cannot get you there. I can give well, you medicine to make you be better in the meanwhile. Oh, yeah. Even if the meanwhile is the rest of your life because you never do get the other. But you need a whole other school of thought to get you where you need to be. Yep. Doctors are trained to look at you, spend five minutes with you, and write a prescription for you. And then goodbye. See you next time. Sure. But let's get back. Let's get back to Hawaii and the food. Oh, you bet. What's the, you're the Hawaii food tour guy and author of the book on the subject and everything. Right. Most of us are not as lucky as you are. If we get to go to Hawaii, it's just once. On our one trip to Hawaii, what is the one quintessential Hawaiian dish that we have to get? First of all, 
on your planning days prior to coming here, you should contact me and give Definitely. me a call or email me and I'll answer all your questions and I'll set you up with where to go and what to do. But as far as the quintessential Hawaiian thing, you do have to try Hawaiian cuisine itself more so than a lot of the other cuisines, which are a mixture of various different Asian cuisines. But Hawaiian cuisine would be like Kalua pork, which is smoked pork shoulder that's cooked underground, wrapped in tea leaves and banana leaves and that kind of thing. It's very juicy and smoky. And I think that would be a quintessential dish to try. And then there are so many other things along with that. The various different Hawaiian cuisines are very simple but they're simply delicious. And there are things that, that the short ribs are good that they do here. And the pipikaula, which is like a jerky style thing. And then they have lovely salmon salad, which is almost like chopped cured salmon. Uh, and it's almost like a sashimi sushi kind of a mixture, maybe like a salsa. And so there's a lot of that. There's poke, which is cubed fish. So that's right, just which tons is probably of things. what People, when you say Hawaiian, that's probably the one thing people are halfway familiar with is, is poke, but it's probably, I hate to sound judgmental, but poke I get here in Texas is probably made wrong. It may be, but you know what? It became such a big draw for people that now poke entrepreneurs have opened up, even in yeah. Texas and places that are landlocked, Oklahoma and Kansas, you can find poke now too. So it's not that difficult to make, honestly. If you have a good grade of fish, that's really what you're starting for. Sure, absolutely. And of course, we in Texas, I know, can identify what you're saying because it's the same thing between Mexican and Tex-Mex. What most people eat at the Mexican restaurants is by no means Mexican. Right. Now, if you go down into the barrio, away from the big name chains and all this kind of things to... In the case of one famous such place here in town where a widow was started out cooking out of the back of her house, you get things that are a lot more traditional and a lot more authentic. Oh, yeah. When I was living in Los Angeles, we were eating off of food trucks that were parked in dark parking lots all throughout L.A. We'd never go into the Mexican restaurants. We'd eat from the people who were in Los Angeles because that's yeah. where their family migrated to. It's one of my favorite sayings here is I keep telling people I want some abuela tamales. I don't want this store-bought stuff. I want tamales that came through the hands of somebody's grandmother. That's what oh, I want. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The ladies who sit there and oh, they yeah, pound yeah, it yeah. from hand to hand. It's just amazing. Yeah. And they're doing it for 60 years. That's the ones I want. Robert, you'll appreciate this. When I first started writing restaurant reviews here in Hawaii, the first time I wrote about a Mexican restaurant, I wrote, if you want a great Mexican meal in Hawaii, it's going to cost you $400 for round-trip airfare to Los Angeles. <laughs> and I got a lot of flack for that, but then I got a lot of people who had been on the mainland and in Mexico and have eaten really good Mexican food who totally agreed with me. Sure. We're not got too much longer here. Is there anything else you want to share about, about your book and what you're trying to do or the food seat there in Hawaii or anything like that? Yeah, sure. I'm at a point right now where I'm in that pay it forward type of place. And so I want to be able to help people with their food and their diet and their health. And of course, if you're traveling here to Hawaii, I can help you with that. I'm an expert in many fields. So I don't want to say too many more things, but if you are interested in any of the things that I've talked about, you can always reach me at hawaii 
www.jeffcoffey.com. That's my website. And I'm really reachable, very easy to access. You can call me or email me anytime, even if you just want plain, simple information. No problem. I appreciate that because one of the things that I'm trying to do with the podcast is build a network of people all over the place, if for no other reason, so we can share ideas and, and so forth. Because it's been, I don't know what your experience in the food world has been, but that's been, my experience has been, that's how the food world works. I know some big name people. And th as far as sharing what they know, they are like the most generous, giving people you'll ever run into. My favorite is probably Robert Irvine that people know from Restaurant Impossible. Sure. People will never know how many emails and everything else that, that have gone back and forth between Chef Irvine and I away from the public eye. Uh -huh. It doesn't count when we're on Twitter when his show is on and we're talking back and forth. That's more of a public thing. Yeah. Oh, they yeah. I always say he was doing that for the publicity or whatever, but there, there's a lot of other private conversations behind that. And it's been my experience that, yeah, if you're cooking on a guy's line, he may be a little, little gruff. He may be a little hard on you, but even that's for a reason. But you get these people aside when you're not on the line. And I've run into very few who are not very generous about giving from their experience. And there's just such a sense in the food world that I wish more people could experience of everybody trying to make everybody better. Yeah, we're a colorful bunch, aren't we? Those of us who worked in the kitchens, no doubt about yeah, it. That's because we came to where we are by so many different paths. Exactly. I'm a lot like you. I spent most of my working life doing other things and got to a certain point. And it's like, okay, I'm going to spend the rest of whatever career I got doing what I want to do, not what everybody else wants me to do, not what everybody else says I should do, not what everybody else says is going to make the most money. Yeah, I never started any of my endeavors had probably 25 businesses in my life. I've never started any of them thinking that they were going to be money makers. It was all about doing what I wanted to do, a creative kind of experience. You're lucky there because I went through the opposite process. And let me tell you, following other people's dreams, other people's priorities, even when it pays, even when it pays the bills, it drags on you. I know there's a, there's a trade-off, right? Some people want to have the job that pays them the paycheck every Friday, whether they do a job or not, whether they feel good or not. And then there are people like me who are entrepreneurs and I got my butt kicked a lot and there were a lot of times I couldn't pay my rent and those kind of things happen too. So I think we're good for each other. There are people at both ends of the spectrum. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. You, have, you have people that, that, that came through like you did. You have people that came through like I did. You have people that we're lucky enough to have the gold-clad culinary education from the beginning, and then right. they apprenticed with the big-name chef and had all the advantages. But it's like I was talking to somebody the other day about part of my journey included 14 months working on the meat counter. Oh, wow. And so I was going back and forth between meat cutters and the public and, okay, what cut of meat do I use for this? Which roast do I pick? And can you pick me out some bacon and all this other kind of stuff? And just this, take it properly, it was a lot more of a teaching role than people would think. Yeah, but people come to you often for recipe ideas, and they come to me also at hawaiifoodtours.com for recipe ideas. I love to share my stuff with people. Sure, sure. Absolutely. And like we were just talking about, always talking to you and other colleagues in the business too, 
and chefs and people we're always trading recipes we're always trading techniques we're always trading oh i get that technique but when i tried it this happened and they're like what you need to do is the other thing and i enjoy that we're coming up about on time so i want to thank you for your time and for, for your contributions and uh your day is a lot earlier than ours, so I hope you have a best, a good rest of the day. Thank you, buddy. I really appreciate you having me on here and inviting me. It's been a lot of fun, and I really respect well, what you're doing. That's part of it. It is fun. And, of course, we're new. We doubly appreciate anybody that does come on. Yeah, but I dare say that this will not be the last time either one of us hears about the other. Oh, we will be in touch. There's no doubt about it, my friend. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Robert. Take care. Aloha. You too, sir. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Matthew. We'll really appreciate the visit. A lot of different things in that half hour. We look forward maybe sometime down the line talking to you again. For the rest of you out there, till next time, this is Crutchfield Cooks, the podcast. Signing off.